What would Jane Jacobs do? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Sandy Ikeda. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Sandy Ikeda. Sandy is a professor and the chair of the economics program at Purchase College of the State University of New York, and a visiting scholar and research associate at New York University. He has lectured in North America, Europe, and Japan, and his current research focuses on the relationship between cities, social cooperation, and entrepreneurial development. Sandy, welcome to The Curious Task. Welcome back to The Curious Task, actually. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here again. And we're happy to have you on again. So we're actually releasing this episode the day after Jane Jacobs' birthday as a tribute, in a way, to her accomplishments and the legacy she's left on economics and urbanism. And we're all big fans of Jane Jacobs here at the ILS, of course. And we're talking to one of our favorite urbanists yourself. And, uh, and, and we're going gonna to get into some of her ideas as well, of course. Um, our question today for the whole episode is, what would Jane Jacobs do? And of course, there's so much we could throw out there and talk about in regard to her thoughts. So, you know, in our first chat together, we talked about why a city can't be a work of art. I recommend everyone listening goes and checks that out. And there we focused on some more foundational aspects of yours and, and Jane's thoughts as well. Um, today, I want to primarily talk about two things with you. Uh, the drivers and generators of a city's diversity, you've written on this, and then tie some of that and talk a bit about the pandemic and urbanism. But before we get to all that great stuff, as I said, this is going out the day after her birthday. Let's. I sometimes like to end with the personal questions, but I'd like to start in this special instance with some, a personal question. Can you just tell us why you're so interested in Jacobs and her work? What What has drawn and still draws you to her ideas overall? Well, as you know, I'm an economist, and I was trained as an economist. Um, well, I got my PhD from New York University, uh, studying with Isabel Kersner and Mario Rizzo and Larry White. I, I had classes with Fritz Machlup there. Um, so these were all Austrian economists who emphasized um, looking at markets in particular and society in general as um, ongoing learning processes, processes of discovery of various kinds, entrepreneurial discovery of creativity. And so this um, entails change and uh, learning um, and the uh, looking at the institutions that promote learning and creativity and change. Um, you know, some of it uh, not so good, but a lot of it is good leading to uh, material prosperity and well-being and things like that. So um, when I was a graduate student in New York City, I um, there a lot at the time there were a lot of um, really good bookstores, uh, independent bookstores, and one of them uh, is the Strand, uh, which is a used bookstore. I think it's still there. Uh, I'd have to double check that. There was some controversy a little while ago about that, but uh, I believe it's still there. Anyway, the Strand is this enormous uh, used bookstore. And I remember going there and um, seeing a copy of Jane Jacobs's Death and Life of Great American Cities. Now, I didn't know anything about her, except that a lot of my uh, classical liberal friends said, this is an interesting book, you might want to look at it. So I, I just bought it and it sat on my shelf for really about eight or 10 years. Uh, I never read it uh, as, a, as a graduate student. So then after I got my first permanent job um, and uh, I had my first sabbatical, I had published my book on, on um, di uh, interventionism called Dynamics of the Mixed Economy. And I was looking for the next major topic that I could work on kind of to extend this idea of, of understanding market processes and um, government intervention, how they how they um, intermingle and, and uh, work play off of each other, um, and so uh, two people, I think it was Pete Betke from GMU, George Mason University, said I should do something having to do with urban or uh, economics or those kinds of problems. Yeah, I guess in particular like rent control, housing problems, and zoning and that sort of thing. Um, I thought about that, okay, maybe. And then my other colleague up in, in Canada, 
University of Toronto at Mississauga. This is uh, Pierre Durocher. Uh, said, uh, you should read Jacobs. So I said, I just happened to have Jacobs. So uh, he sent me some stuff to read, but I also had her her book. So I started reading it. And okay, so it's finally answer your, your, your question. What captivated me was really from the first sentence, right? Where she says, uh, this book is an attack on something to the effect conventional uh, urban planning. Uh, and it is also... Uh, a, a proposal for different principles for urban urban uh, revital, re revitalization and rebuilding, words to that effect. And so that's gripping. And then, you know, reading on a bit, I realized that what she's talking about um, was, well, her criticism was based on the urban planners of her day, not recognizing the importance of local knowledge of looking at um, urban processes that um, happen from the ground up, that the importance of uh, informal contact and uh, essentially voluntary um, interactions. And so, I mean, this is very interesting. And it, it soon becomes apparent after you read a few chapters that there's a lot of congruence between her view of how social orders work in the context, in the institutional context of cities, and in particular great cities, those that, that innovate, um, that have large population, large diverse populations. And Austrian economics, which as I said before, emphasizes market processes, discovery and learning. And um, you know, I soon discovered that reading more of her, that all her books are imbued with this viewpoint. And in particular, I think, you know, as Austrians uh, who've, uh, uh, read people like Hayek and Kersner, uh, entrepreneurship associated with Kersner, uh, things like spontaneous order and emergence with Hayek. These are things that that directly fit into, at least the way I saw it, into Jacobs's social theory, broader social theory. Um, and then all of her books, almost all of them, uh, are about economics. Uh, even death and life, uh, she says in the uh, introductory part of the book, uh, first the introduction or the first chapter or so, that the most important parts of the book are the, the middle chapters, which are about uh, economic processes. So that's a part, and that's an aspect of her her book, that book, and and really her work in general that even her biggest fans tend to downplay or overlook. And so it just, it seemed to me that, gee, we, I had a lot to learn as somebody comes from um, a background of Austrian economics and market process theory from Jane Jacobs, because she was talking about the institutions and the mechanics that helped to promote entrepreneurial discovery and the emergence of social order in a very concrete, you know, almost literally sense, uh, environment in, in the context of the city. And so she showed me how important the city is. At the same token, there were certain gaps in, in her uh, framework. You know, for example, she hardly ever talked about prices. Um, she talked about urban problems without discussing rent control, really. Initially, later on, she does. Later on, she talks about prices and how they signal, um, give feedback within processes, but this is, you know, decades later, really. Uh, so there are, there are these gaps or lacuna in her own ways of thinking that I thought, well, um, Austrian economists, and in and, and particular Austrian economists, because the emphasis on prices as um, uh, ways to coordinate behavior, as signals of information, rather than sort of straightforward microeconomics with its emphasis on static equilibrium for the most part, which she criticized. She went out of, out of her way to criticize uh, standard microeconomics. Um, the, the Austrian market process you seem to be uh, of prices and, and pricing seem to fit much more congenially into her framework. So it was like a both, you know, we could learn a lot from her, we being Austrians could learn a lot from her. At the same time, Jacobsians who don't, a, don't appreciate the fact that her major contributions are to economics or, and, 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 and then also even within her own economics, there are these, there are these uh, 
weaknesses that could be that could be strengthened by an appreciation of, of Austrian economics. So this was, you know, um, late 1990s, early 2000s, and really that's been my uh, research agenda since then. Just it's been very satisfying and fruitful to see ways in which these um, two different paradigms uh, come to very similar conclusions in very similar ways, but independently. I thought I think that's fascinating. I still think it's fascinating. So that's why I, I still work on this kind of stuff. And it's, I, I think it, it you know, uh, gives you, gives me, and I, I would, I would encourage anybody to look at, at her work, uh, ideas for, uh, uh, further research and understanding the world, uh, the social world, economics, uh, social orders in general. And as you were just saying there towards the end, even today, for, for those listening who may not know, of course, Jane Jacobs is, is not still alive. She passed some time ago, but, but so she's not writing anything anymore, but, but even as new problems come up and as the timeline of our lives goes on things like you know COVID-19 pandemic which we'll touch on more specifically later it, it's it's so interesting to me that you know you, you still find like a, that's such a great well of information and thought as a person and as a thinker that you keep going back to in Jane Jacobs mm -hmm. that allows you to you know address even new topics as they come up of course a year year I, how long has it been geez I guess two years ago I should say you weren't thinking about writing about Jane Jacobs and pandemics or even speaking on that but but here we are you're able to make those connections right. that, that's 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 right I think um, as we as we continue our conversation, I'll, there, there are other aspects of her work that I think economists and social theorists in general, but especially those who are uh, influenced by by Mises and Hayek and Kersner, um, I think would gain a great deal from. I'm thinking mainly like her her work on social social networks and social capital. Right. And before I move on to some other meat of the matter, just on one last note on the sort of the personal side, if you will. Am, am I correct in remembering, I could be wrong, that, that you actually had mentioned somewhere that, that you actually got a chance to meet Jacobs as well? Yes, yes, I did. Um, twice, um, but in, in very short order. This was in 2004. Um, not too long, just a couple of years after I really got into her work, uh, Pierre Desrochers. Um arranged for me and two other him and two other uh, uh, people um, you know uh, academics to visit her in her uh, house in the annex in Toronto uh, spent most of the afternoon there over three hours talking with her and it was one of the highlights of my life I must say uh, and then a, about a month or so later she came to New York to give the first um, Lewis Mumford talk at City College, uh, and I, uh, she asked me specifically to attend that, and there was a workshop after that, and so I got to uh, see her again. Uh, not be able, I wasn't able to spend quite so much time with her, but uh, we exchanged um, some uh, some letters back and forth, and um, you know she died very suddenly, and, and uh, she's heartbroken uh, because of that. You know, it is ironic. Um, those of you who may know something about Jacobs, that she would give the first Lewis Mumford lecture, because even though he was a great supporter of her early on, he got very upset with her um, because he critic she criticized uh, uh, his, uh, his, the way he, he thought about cities. Um, we don't have to go into that part, but it does reflect something that I, I want to talk about, uh, you know, maybe later about her, in in her independence. Uh, independent way of thinking and uh, the fact that she had no problem bucking authority and Lewis Mumford was a big deal at that time so anyway so she gives the first Lewis Lewis Mumford talk and I thought that was kind of kind of funny yeah no for sure and, and you know what we'll, we'll park the independent thinking part as we get into some of her thoughts and it'll probably come, come back up later as we explore some of her her thought process so let, let's sort of get get out of that pool if you will and jump into another one I, I'd like to start with one of her ideas and, and the, some of her ideas that you've explored as well with uh, talking about what drives diversities in one of your re diversity, I should say, in one of your recent papers, you say, quote, to try to understand a city means appreciating that it is a complex, dynamic process in which diversities must tend strongly to cohere and complement one another. What do you mean by this? And why is diversity so important to recognize? It's a theme that is very strong in Death and Life, um, which is published, it wasn't her first book, but it was the first major work published in 1961. 
And um, you know, to, today diversity um, has uh, a lot of meanings and uh, which are, you know, I think when, when you hear the word diversity today, it ref people are referring mainly to um, I mean, ethnic diversity, cultural diversity. Um, and when J Jacobs wrote in 61, she wasn't, that wasn't her emphasis. When she speaks of diversity, you know, for example, um, some the core chapters of the book that I was referring to earlier, her, her death and life book, um, have to do with conditions that generate diversity. Okay, so it's, it's right there. Um, please remind me if I get off track to explain why diversity is important. No worries, no worries. <laughs> but, the, the, but for her, diversity meant diversity in land use, how people use public space differently uh, or space in, in a city differently. And uh, land use meaning, you know, the broad categories of commerce and residential, industrial, for example. And But within each of those categories, there are uh, a wide variety of, of residences and, and so forth. But in particular, the, the blending of these things, the mixing of these different land uses within a fairly uh, con confined or compact um, geographic area, you know, call it a neighborhood. Okay, neighborhood differ in size in terms of geography and also population. But the idea was that you have um, what I think people would today refer to as mixed use, but Jacobs had specifically in mind mixed primary uses. Primary uses are land uses that attract people from outside of a neighborhood in it. Okay. And okay, so that's that's what diversity means for her. Later, of course, uh, it, it, the, the idea of, of ethnic diversity, cultural diversity is certainly um, congenial to this this notion of land use diversity because after all you know if you open up a vietnamese restaurant it's, it's often by vietnamese or somebody who has a different background so anybody who has a particular use for a space does it for you know any number of reasons part of which is their diverse background okay so and 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 so there's that and and uh, uh i i think also she would have no objection but maybe you know, you know, have have a lot of support um, for um, the, the idea of having diverse races and cultures within a within a uh, certain environment. In fact, I mean, this is something she recognizes in '61 as part of cities. Okay, so this that's what um, she means by by diversity in her her first major book. Why is it important? Well, um, no, the title of the book is. The Death and Life of Great American Cities. And so that's what she's looking at. Great, again, has to do with um, cities that are creative, that are innovative, that um, generate um, wealth and prosperity. How does that happen? And for her, um, you know, a couple of things are necessary. You have to have a lot of people coming together, uh, but they have to be uh, coming together in different ways. They have to bring different um, experiences, different competencies, um, so that they will, you know, use land and space differently. Um, it, it's it's very much related to the economic concept of comparative advantage, where compared principle of comparative advantage is the static economic concept, which says that you should uh, pursue that line of activity where you're most efficient. Okay, but, but the Precondition for that to occur is specialization. Uh, comparative advantage uh, and specialization occur when people are different. They have different skills and tastes on the demand side. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of related to that um, if you're thinking about it in economic terms. But in more dynamic sense, she says, look, you're living in a, in a city where there are a lot of People, particularly people who don't know each other, and um, they come into a great city for looking for opportunity. Now, why do they come to a great city looking for opportunity? It's kind of a chicken and egg thing because, on the one hand, people come to a great city largely to find 
some opportunities. They're looking for something. They may have a specific idea in mind. You know, I want to be a Broadway star or something like that. I want to be uh, a successful attorney. I think now often you come with these ideas and once you get to the city, they have to change either because of necessity or because you realize this, there are other things that, that you didn't realize were possible in a city. Right. So there are opportunities there, but how the opportunities get there in the first place? Well, because there's a diverse environment um, there. You have, so strangers come to the city because they're in a sense, because there are other strangers there who were tolerated, who were able to thrive and connect these different, diversities, again, in skills, knowledge, tastes, and various uses of things, different, you know, stores, shops, you, know, you name it, in a way that fit together, and that offers, um, offers opportunities. And again, most of your audience won't, won't know anything about Austrian capital theory. But this is this resonates with Austrian capital theory because Austrian capital theory emphasizes the heterogeneity of capital and therefore heterogeneous cap like a hammer and a nail. A hammer is not a nail, right? They're, these are different things. They're not, they're not even perceived to be uh, the same thing. I mean, you could, you, you know, a hammer could hold down a piece of paper, so could a nail, but for most uses, right, we subjectively think that they're, that they're different. In fact, they, they can be used, but they're used together. Okay. Now, um, to do that, you have to have some knowledge, right? The first hammers and the first nails are probably very crude. And uh, somebody, you know, saw these differences and were able to exploit it. How were they able to do it? Well, in, a, in, a, in an atmosphere of freedom and tolerance, you were allowed to, to change what, you know, maybe before that, no, nobody, used, nobody used hammer and nail. You know, they try to fit all these blocks together in a precise way and chisel them and everything. Well, I got this hammer now. I just, you know, pump pound the same thing much faster. And that may or may that may not have been tolerated for a while. Well, anyway, so the point is in, in Austrian capital theory, it's a way of putting together these heterogeneous inputs in a way that is complementary, complementary, meaning that the value that they produce is greater than the value that is expended in putting them together. So the benefits exceed the cost, in other words. Okay, so that's what diversity is. It's, it's like all these tools lying around in a city. And so people who are um, resourceful and, and, and ambitious uh, and uh, uh, clever in, in some, some way uh, are able to, to uh, see these things in cities much more in diverse great cities much more um, easily than they would in an environment where there was less diversity. So you know, discovering and innovating and creating, right? If you come to a city and you want to be like a singer, and you think, okay, that singer means you're going to be singing in a theater or somewhere, but no, you realize there are other opportunities for singers, right? There are these there are small musicals or basement places you could go you could be a singing waiter you didn't, didn't realize these things could happen so these innovations occur uh, as people are attracted to cities uh, for for various reasons and so that 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 change that creativity generates you know both uh, it generates innovation and it and it, it makes people uh, makes people better off um, yeah, so that's what diversity is, and in, a, in a kind of a sort of a nutshell, I know I kind of went on there, but it was that's that's what uh, what diversity does for you, and uh, particular, and and also cities, great cities are. She never makes this explicit, but you know the assumption that there's economic freedom here. You're free enough either from government constraint or tradition to try new things. Um, oh, and then the other thing that happens is you're, it's, it's easier to discover opportunities because all this diverse information is coming to you within cities. And then also, there's a lot of competition. Once you discover something new, it gets diffused very quickly. Right? You, you, you figure out uh, a new way of performing or a new kind of performance space. You put singers together. Pretty soon, if it's successful, people copy you. And that happens really fast in a, in a dense um, environment where a lot of people and, and uh, a lot of people uh, as, as, as uh, 
listeners and also other practitioners. We have one more question I can get in here before we head to the break, but I, I think that was great. I think that really explored diversity very well, part of the context. I'm, I'm going to connect that up with some stuff about COVID in just a minute. But but before I do that, I want to just note that one thing I really liked about the, the title of your paper, which was actually Urban Diversity and Cohesion, uh, a Jacob's in Solution, that you know you even pointed out, I believe it was in that paper, or perhaps it was in the le- another lecture, I forgot. But nevertheless, you have made the point before that you know, on the surface, when you think of those two words, you might think that there might be some friction or tension between them, right? The idea of diversity and cohesion. And I like, you know, ultimately how you tie that back to a, a vital city or a bus city. It's this diversity that actually in, 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 a, in a perhaps counterintuitive way enables that cohesion. Yeah, I think that's really important, especially when we um, talk about, we'll talk about, uh, you know, pandemics and so forth later. Um, one of the things the way one way to think about this is you come into a city and 99.9999% of the people that you encounter are, are complete strangers to you. Mm-hmm. Right? You walk out the door of the hundreds, maybe thousands of people you will pass by that day, you may know none of them. Okay. Or you may encounter them briefly, uh, buy some you know groceries and you recognize the clerk or something. Oh, and and also there are there are some very fairly stable characters. Uh, there's a pet store. Um, pet shop, uh, pet food uh, uh, shop owner in our neighborhood that's very, very well known. There are people like that that even that are sing- are really essential in a, in a great city. But most of the people you know, you 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 encounter, you don't know, mm-hmm. uh, and even people you, you you know a little bit better, you don't know anything much about their private life. And that's actually, according to Jacobs, a virtue <laughs> um, in a big city. You go to cities both to seek opportunity and to seek anonymity. Right, so that so that you can be creative, so that you can be weird, and your, you know, your family doesn't know, or your friends you went to high school don't know. That's, that's you can kind of remake yourself uh, in a city uh, that that uh, you know wasn't possible in a more traditional, you know, conservative environment where things change uh, much less often. But yeah, it so strangers uh, have to are are the part of a part of the. Uh, essential part of that element, but also, you know, you think you can think you have people who are strangers who are socially distant in, in the sociological sense, who have different backgrounds and not much connection to you. Uh, you can very easily think of, of conflict. In fact, for most of human history, if you were to encounter somebody who spoke different language, had different ways, different beliefs, you know, ate different food, dressed differently. You know, it's like, okay, I'll walk the other way or I'll, you know, throw these rocks at you and then I'll run away or something like that. So it's this conflict. So the the, the challenge, um, and, and Jacobs uh, identifies this challenge, you know, in, in death and life, is, you know, great cities are full of strangers. That's, that's its virtues, but that's also the challenge. So how do great cities solve this problem of enabling this great diversity among strangers to blend in, in such a way that you create um, prosperity, right? You, you create economic innovation. That's and, and looking at looking at cities that way just you know change the way I see the social order uh, very much. Yeah, that's that's that is that is the problem. Especially when you don't you know there's uncertainty, there's there's ignorance and. You know, under those circumstances, one of the problems or challenges that arises is tolerating, right? Tolerance and trust of people that you don't know and, and may briefly encounter, but then never see again. Like there's that moment if you walk around New York City or Chicago or London or Tokyo, where you come up, you're walking towards somebody and, you know, maybe you, know, you, you step aside, they step aside. There's that moment, you know, you, you're, you're depending on them to do a certain thing. Right to know certain rules and how do you know that they know the rules? How do you know that they know that you know that they know the rules? And, um, but, and they do right? almost all the time. Uh, well, Tokyo is a challenge because most people in, uh, if you're not, if you're not British, you're going to try to pass them on the left. <laughs> uh, American will try to pass them on the right. So you run into these kind of problems. I guess you run into the same kind of problem, American and London, but anyway, you get the point. The point is that, that, uh, in any kind of social environment where you run up against somebody you don't know well, uh, there's a certain set of rules and understandings that have to be there that uh, in order for you to cooperate, I mean, just in, a, in this very trivial example, an even more 
you know, seriously, we're going to have start a business together or buy or sell something to, which is very, very different uh, from the kind of rules that govern people that you know well, like your brothers or sisters, parents, and within a family. Right? The, those rules are much, uh, I won't say they're, they're, they're different. Um, uh, there aren't fewer rules. There are probably more rules in, in a family environment. Uh, similarly, in, in amongst strangers, there you know the content of the rules, the kind of rules that they are, are different. It's not any less complex. I think you just you have to understand that difference. And 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 Jacobs pointed me to this. Right, she said one of the things that are necessary to get this diversity to become complementary. Uh, she says this in Death and Life is there has to be clear definition, clear distinction between public space. That is spaces where you're going to encounter strangers and private space, okay, like your living room or something like that, where you're not expected to encounter strangers. Uh, because then you have you have to know how to behave in different situations in each of those spaces, right? So somebody could be acting in the same way. They could be, you know, if somebody's crying in your living room, you're going to react differently than if somebody's crying in a, in a supermarket, for example. Uh, you have to know. You have to know what those differences are and how to act appropriately. Anyway, so it's the emergence of those rules, and then the incentives, I guess, that people have to follow those rules consistently. That uh, is really important, and and understanding that is really fascinating, right? It, you 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 know you could use experimental game theory to to figure out how this happens. That that certainly does help, uh, but uh, you know, this it, it's. I like to think that cities are really um, the uh, I don't know. It's 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 the it's the um, place where economists and sociologists and um, anybody who's interested in social or really has to look uh, to to understand the things that they about the social order that they want to understand. I think that's an excellent place to take our break. So we're going to do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Sandy Ikeda today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including... Travis Smith, Vincent Geloso, and Alessandra Fiorello. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Sandy Ikeda today. So, so Sandy, I think the, in the first half of the episode was awesome. We covered uh, cohesion, diversity, uh, norms in cities. And, and as I said to, to everyone listening, I definitely encourage people also to go check out our first episode together where we really talked about why a city can't be a work of art and what really makes the lifeblood of a city. I'm going to jump into a few COVID-19 things specifically in, in a second. But uh, you mentioned something fun to me during the break real quick. Uh, it's about the sort of the, the title of our episode. What would Jane Jacobs do or or if you will, what would, what would she say is another way of thinking about that. And, and you mentioned sort of something fun that like, uh, although we can always speculate, she might not actually like if, if we talked about what she might say. Well, right? I think I think a lot of people wouldn't like somebody speaking for them. And of course, you know, she's dead. So, you know, what, what else could you do? But uh, she, she had a she's a very independent thinker. She liked to challenge people um, who even people who are, who are trying to, you know, spout her beliefs and she would she would challenge them right uh, she would she would do the same thing i'm sure in a room full of conservatives she'd challenge conservatives she'd a room full of marxists she'd challenge them and so anybody who tried to pin her uh, as interpreting things a certain way uh i've seen her do this uh, to socialists i think she she's also done this for to libertarians you know didn't like that so the, the fact that uh uh you know the, the, if the episode is about what would Jane Jacobs say and what is Sandy Ikeda speaking for Jane Jacobs going to say that Jane would have said, uh, I think I think she would have, in particular, would especially dislike that, you know, being the kind of independent person she was, somebody presuming to speak for her. So I just want to, and I would pr- totally agree with that. I, I, I uh, respect that, that her point of view there. Uh, and so I just want that to be understood to anybody who's listening. I'm not. I'm not trying to speak for her, 
Uh, I just, this is my interpretation of her work. Um, and so, uh, and, and, and uh, nobody should take what I say to be, you know, some kind of Jacobsian channeling going on. Right. Here. <laughs> or, or, or like, or, or the sort of the last word on something. And actually, you know what, what, that's just a great way for us to just plug her books and her work. So everyone head to Amazon, see for yourself what Jane has to say, and then also check out right, Sandy's no, stuff exactly. too. They're very, they're very, very readable books. Yes. So as I said, we talked about a lot in the first half. I, I just want to jump into this point here. You know, there are, of course, consequences during this pandemic, especially when it comes to physical distancing during during this time. There's a lot of consequences. Of course, a lot of the media is focusing around, and understandably so, um, you know, many of the economic consequences, specifically, you know, like GDP figures, buying and selling, etc. But things like reduced seating capacities and so on don't just have the obvious economic effects. And you've said in a lecture I watched online that it, it also, especially in this time when it's encouraged in a way, we have this sort of increased fear of each other in a certain sense, and specifically strangers, people we don't know. Why is this something to worry about when it comes to thinking about the health of our cities overall? And how do we connect, you know, what's going on now to sort of the great stuff you were talking about in the in the first half? This is something that's going to concern you moving forward. Yeah, I think, you know, as, uh, as I was saying in the last uh, segment, that the cities are full of strangers. And people who are strangers to each other in order for the city to be great, to be innovative, creative, um, and, and places where people can uh, uh, find opportunities is to be able to uh, not only tolerate, but also thrive amongst, amongst strangers. Uh, I am, I've been working for the past several months on a paper. I don't know if it'll ever get published, but the title is uh, social, social distancing, the socially distant. And um, kind of a play on words, right? That the term social distancing is what's used to refer to uh, staying, uh, you know, two meters away, uh, limiting seat capacity, as you're mentioning, wearing masks, um, and so forth. Um, and how that might affect uh, getting along with strangers, that is to say, the socially distant. Uh, so, you know, that. I think there is this, there is a tension there, which is not to say that, you know, a year ago when this whole, you know, uh, early spring 2020, this pandemic was, was starting to uh, become a greater and greater concern. There was a lot of fear. Uh, just, I just remember, you know, I, I live in Brooklyn and New York and, um, New York was one of the hardest hit early on. Uh, we, had, we, we had thousands and thousands of fatalities in the city um, and then more in the state due to various things, including them, where anyway, policy blunders. Um, and so we were wiping everything. Every time I went, went outside, I would take an alcohol wipe and wipe, wipe down doorknobs. I, I would just, you know, just everything. And we, we still take those precautions. We do wear masks here and so forth. Okay. so. As a libertarian, I, I felt really torn about this because um, I wanted people to wear masks. Now, this is just me. The other libertarians were, were I, and I respect that they didn't didn't think people should wear masks. But I was just, I just didn't know. I didn't, you know, the science was not in. The data was still not really in. The data is mm -hmm. not not clear. Just look, why take this chance? And and so then, um, about this time last year. Uh, the, the mayor shut down schools. The governor issued mandates to shut down, quote unquote, non-essential businesses, and which I really didn't like at all. But at the same time, I thought, okay, well, if this is, if we're talking about, like, talking about the bubonic plague here, if we're talking about, you know, that scale of thing, which, and it's bad enough as it has been, but, you know, just, it, we just didn't know how, I thought, okay, I, I, I'll go along with this um, because it, it, uh, it makes sense at least for the time being. At the same time, I recognize, and, and this is the Jacobian, my Jacobian interpretation is, okay, well, you know, these gathering places, these public spaces are precisely the areas uh, where you have informal contact, where you get to know other people to one degree or another, and you cooperate, and you, you tolerate, you cooperate, and, and uh, enjoy the company of strangers. That, that is no, that for, you know, several weeks, even months uh, in New York, and I'm sure elsewhere, was gone. 
it was gone. Right. No restaurants, no, no uh, movie theaters. You know, you could go to a grocery store and you could order food from restaurants to take out. But there was no reason to go out on the street other than that. And so there are these amazing pictures of like Fifth Avenue in the afternoon that's just completely deserted. Amazing pictures of uh, this past uh, New Year's of Times Square being more or less deserted in, in the days leading up to uh, the New Year celebration compared to the year earlier, or just jam-packed with people, even before you know the dropping of the ball and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, that's going to have implications. I think our society um, is resilient enough and I'm thinking primarily the West, but I tell you everywhere, that it could withstand that kind of temporary uh, shutdown. That kind of shut as long as it was temporary. But the longer it goes on, and also the more it is reinstated, I guess as it has been done again in Canada, as we see in Germany and Bur- and uh, 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 Great Britain. You know, opening up, shutting down, opening up, shutting down. It's just, it's very disruptive. And intended or not, it 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 um, reinforces and in a lot of cases, I think, promotes fear. And that's a killer. Uh, you know, because, you know, it, instead of going out and, and walking out in public, you're, you avoid it and you become afraid of it. And I don't think so. If you look at the, for there are different ways to look at the, the crime statistics in New York and Los Angeles. Even though there are fewer people in public space, the murder rate went up. Violent crime went up in many cities, and of course, we saw uh, in the summertime a lot of uh, protests. Some of them violent, not all of them. Uh, we didn't have that many violent protests in New York, but in Portland and elsewhere, fires burning and you know, buildings being wrecked. We had some of that here. But, and I think that's kind of the you know pent up energy, but also just this frustration. Uh, and then more recently, of course, in, across uh, the United States, anyway, there have been uh, increased incidents of violence against Asian Americans. Um, so I'm I myself an Asian American, and so it's you know it, it, we feel a little more sec- I do, and my wife does. Going out. We're, we're more careful about this, even though you know we're talking about uh, it's a it's a significant increase in the number of of um, so-called hate crimes uh, and you know actual actual aggression, but also uh, verbal abuse and things like that. Uh, fortunately, you know I haven't experienced an uptick in that. Uh, you know it sometimes happens in in any case, but I haven't experienced. But th- my point being, right? You it, it this this fear of the other strangers, people who are diverse <laughs> we're talking about diversity but uh it, it seems to have just reinforced that and it you know wasn't helped by rhetoric that we hear from politicians and others that that seem to inflame a lot of these uh these these fears so yeah it uh, i guess what i'm saying is um you know there there are uh you know if you believe that government should exist and it has a role uh, maybe this was one of the things they should have done, right, given this emergency. But I, it's unfortunate governments, and I say government meaning people in government, have, have a different set of incentives and also different um, learning capacities. That is to say, they're, what, are, what is the information they're exposed to? So it's taking a long time to, to, to learn from past experience. And I think the you know, uh, seeing these shutdowns happen again and again. Fortunately, it hasn't happened so much in, in, in my neck of the woods. But, you know, shutting down is the easiest thing a government can do. You know, going back to only so-called essential services and businesses, because it's easy. It's, it's not that it's low cost. It's extremely high cost. But it's easy to implement as opposed to saying, okay, businesses, you you know, can open at your discretion and we'll let people decide. And, you know, we may say, for example, that, uh, I don't know, you have to wear masks when you're in a store. That's difficult to enforce because right? you have to go right up to the person and, 
and uh, either the employee, you know, the poor employee, many of them gotten attacked by customers who don't like this, or you have to call police in to, to, to sometimes beat people up when they're not cooperative. And the people who aren't cooperating with this oftentimes are people who might be prone to, to disobedience uh, in, in many different different uh, situations. As, and, so just shutting the store down, that's, that's pretty easy. You put a lock on the door, you know, and you drive by in your police car and see, is that store open or not? It's closed. Okay, very good. If it's open, go shut it down. Uh, so it's a it's a it's an easy kind of re- I was going to say reflexive, but it's it's a relatively easy thing to do, but at a very very high cost that's imposed on um, other people. So I guess what I'm saying is that it, it, I think we can. There's enough experience in this past year to learn how to uh, adjust to that, but I think most of that is at the local level. Okay. One thing that was very beautiful that we saw last uh, spring and summer is uh, people using social media to raise money for hospital workers, um, buy food for people who needed it, who, you know, just completely, this is like GoFundMe type stuff. Yeah. Completely outside of the public sector kind of thing. And then what was very nice to see is the way regulations and and the use of public space like sidewalks and parking spaces on the street were converted uh, to outdoor spaces for for restaurants. Uh, I was very happy to see that flexibility happen. And I hope that persists, that kind of recognition that that people on the street, literally in the local, using the local knowledge can adjust to these circumstances if you let them, okay? And if it creates problems, then you address those problems, but don't try to anticipate what's going to happen. Um, I mean, I guess what I'm saying, you need to react. And, and the reason we need rec is these are novel circumstances. And it, it's it's difficult or impossible to anticipate exactly uh, how people are going to are going to adjust, but you have to, I think you have to let them adjust and experiment and be creative, which is what, you know, resourceful people do in cities. And actually on, on that note, I'm going to bring in a quote from you here. This is a, on, a, on a lecture I saw, so I transcribed it a bit. You, you said, the harder it is to connect with outsiders or form weak ties with the socially distant, the fewer the opportunities there will be to make discoveries that are radically creative or innovative. Instead of innovating, people will just do the same thing. And then you went on to say, I fear that the fear of the stranger if it persists, will make the great cities decline. And I think we've all felt during this time that there is this sort of tendency to fall into the doing the same thing over and over because that's that's all we can do. But 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 zooming out from the individual level, just as you were saying, right, you're not only fearing that, you're not only fearing that this fear will, will cause, as you said, to, to make the social distant even, the socially distant even more distant. Some, some American president said something about Fearing fear itself, yeah, yeah, right? something like that. Yeah, so so you're not only fearing that it's going to make uh, us fear other people more, but but in, but in the grander scheme of things, if this sort of persistent cultural trend, if you will, in our societies persists, where we just do the same thing over and over, since we make these great cities, they're not just there without the people. You're fearing that that's going to actually cause a decline of great 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 cities to some degree, or there's that risk there, the tendencies you feel. I mean, to some extent, physical distancing. I prefer the term physical distancing to social distancing. Uh, uh, can is consistent with social uh, interaction, uh, just as we're doing here, right, over Zoom or having a webinar. And last year, I gave more talks, I think twice as many talks as they've ever given, because the transaction costs are so much lower, transport costs are, are almost nil. And it's been wonderful, uh, but up to a point. Um, and so this distance, physical distance, for impacts different kinds of people differently. And of course, that that could refer to you know uh, people who who uh, respond negatively to social isolation, but I had more in mind um, in in careers, people going into business. You know, take my take me. I, I've I've been teaching for almost thirty five years now, and I've been teaching over you know, over uh, online uh, using uh, Zoom, and it's fine. I'm I've been, and and uh, actually. 
you know, enjoy doing it this way. I'm looking forward to going back to teaching for it face-to-face, but I don't find this a tremendous hardship. Once I learned the technology and how to give exams over, <laughs> right. know, over, over on difficult, but you know, I got that. But the, what I have, a, I have a, a young colleague we, we hired last year and she doesn't know anybody on, know anybody on campus. So I, I encourage her to go to faculty meetings where you have you know, a couple hundred faces in cells over several pages, right? But you don't get to know anybody that way. There's no having coffee with anybody. So if you're young and you're starting off in a career, you don't get that essential contact. Know who can help you, who's doing what, that informality. You know, so whereas for people like me, it's 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 a lot easier to do because I know most of the people already. But you know, if it persists, then it's going to affect even me. Uh, so that's that's one of the points I've, I've, I wanted to make about how physical distancing, if it's not if it's done temporarily, need not have a great impact on social cohesion, as we we're talking about before. Before, but if you keep going on like this, having extended shutdowns or lockdowns or repeated cycles of opening and closing, opening and closing, and the, and the uncertainty and fear that that can generate, it's it's not good. It's not good uh, because you get you do get this fear and distrust and this tendency just to you know why bother making the effort and and uh, you do sort of we all live in our own bubbles. Everybody lives in, even under so-called normal circumstances. We have we have both. This just reinforces it. We don't get outside our our bubbles. I, I was remarking to my wife the other day that it's been you know over a year since I touched anybody. Uh, aside from her and my son, I haven't like given anyone a hug or anything, right? No, no. I, you know, I, with my, you know, with my hand, I haven't touched anybody. Right. I mean, you know, it's it's really it's astonishing and it's very sad. Uh, and you know that this cannot go on. I mean, that's just one thing, right? But I think it's indicative. You don't shake hands. You know, not shaking hands. I mean, there are some cultures, of course, where you don't shake hands. But the point is. That's that's a that's a symbol of of, of contact of, with with other people, and it's an, for us in the West, it's really important to be able to do that. Yeah, as you're as you're saying before, it's interesting to note that you know it's part of part of the lifeblood of a city. What makes it vital, what makes it ro- robust, is not necessarily the fact that uh, exchange happens there in the economic sense, uh, or, or or like you know people can talk to each other because as you said, we can we can do that on Zoom. But there's there's another dimension, the, the, the nature of the sort of interactions that you have in person. There's something about yeah, that that really a, makes it kind work. of a serendipity, accidental encounters. That's much more difficult to do. I mean, there's some things that can still happen on this kind of thing, and keeping in touch with people. Uh, you know, I talk to people who live thousands of miles away much more frequently. I have a, a, a regular meeting with people who live in Europe, uh, you know, every you know fortnightly, which probably would never happen but for this. But I already knew them. Right. 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 These people I already knew. Uh, I, I'm not really getting to know. I don't go to conferences, you know, and have coffee and chat and figure out who's who's funny and why and kind of stuff who I want to hang out with that just that's not happening and hopefully it'll happen pretty soon yeah that, that that's that's you know that that spontaneous thing I've even heard like a lot of networking events and things like that that obviously got destroyed in 2020 oh my god and I guess the, the other thing is of course is, is entertainment and and uh, performances yes, yes. Uh, particularly you know uh, theater concerts and things like that. that that's a real challenge and a place like New York, London, where uh, culture and these kinds of performances, public performances are are vital, not only to the those sectors themselves, but it promotes the diversity, brings people into the city, you know, it helps you hire somebody because it's an interesting place to 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 live as well as work. And that's got a I'm really interested to see how that's going to adjust because stuff I've seen, you know, trying to have concerts on Zoom, it's it's fascinating, but you get I'm so tired of seeing people, you know, 
playing instruments yeah. <laughs> on Zoom. I mean, it's novel at first, but now it's, it's just it's just oh, yeah. not good music. Yeah, a lot a lot of the event organizers I know, you know, at, at first it was sort of just oh, we'll invite people we know, get on Zoom, we could talk there. But now they're they're trying to think of these innovative ways to get random people in there and put them in different rooms, just because because you'll never be able to replicate that level of as you said, chance encounter, spontaneousness that exists just in, in sort of a city or in, or in regular. Yeah, times. you're walking by, you're walking by some place and you hear music, you want to go see it, or you look and. Anyway, that kind of thing. One more sort of main point I want to get in here before we go to our formal wrap up, um, and and I'll say generally, then I'll tie it to an example I've been thinking of. So, so last time we chatted, we talked about you know how part of letting a city grow organically is of course accepting the open ended nature of its path. That the chance encounters all these micro things eventually add up to to a city sort of organically, if you will, heading where where it will head. You know, failures and unexpected events must be allowed, you noted. In, in one of your talks related to COVID-19, you quoted Hayek, for example, as saying, the important point is that the political ideas of a people and its attitude toward authority as, as much, are as much the effect as the cause of the political institution under which it lives. And, and I guess what I'm saying by tying all that together is, are, are we running the risk of that people will get more used to spontaneous and inorganic interactions all this after all this government authority is done being used during the pandemic and and they might want think of life if you will wanting more control and i'll give you an example you, you noted um for instance a lot of restaurants have extended into parking spaces and patios and things like that and i thought that was really awesome too uh one of the great things in ottawa that happened was that if people know the the, the, the quote-unquote market area downtown in ottawa like it's very small streets and people drive on them but but all the patios were extended onto the streets it was very cool to see uh, unfortunately a bunch of of course city councillors and other people got the idea ah perhaps we, we we can keep it like this. And then all these plans started and people want to sort of plan what was sort of, if you will, slightly a spo- spontaneous order. So I'm wondering all that to say, if if we've gotten used to planning and order in a, in a certain way over, over the past two years, do you feel that we might run the risk of getting a little too comfortable with the idea that instead of this chance and organic growth idea of a city, people might, for instance, have certain sets of planning become more appealing to them or having a little more control over the, this, this li- the lifeblood of oh, our cities? Uh, that's a great question. I've been thinking about this a lot. And um, I, you know, I don't know what the conclusion is, but uh, you know, you've identified, I think, this, this two trends or two trade-offs, uh, uh, a, a trade-off. Um, on the one hand, I fear, as the higher quote that you read earlier, uh, that people get um, uh, not only would you know de- demand or politically the political preferences are for more regulation. The regulations themselves have a psychological impact. Uh, for example, he used exa- uh, rent control as being um, deleterious, not just because of its you know creates chronic shortages, but also because it housing is such an important part of people's lives that if it's if the price of that thing is controlled by an external authority. Right, who's and and uh, you know personified in the form of like a housing agent or office or something like that. It 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 just shows it just uh, shows that you're dependent on the state, which it, that's different from being dependent on the market because the market tends to be impersonal, and so it's not doesn't mean that it's any less unpleasant not to be able to find a house. But when you know that it's the result of somebody making an arbitrary decision, that uh, you you know, like it's like public housing in the United in the United States. Uh, you don't have much choice. Uh, you know, here it is. Uh, you know, take it or leave it. Right? Uh, there's no market, uh, so there's that. Um, it has a psychological. So you have this dependency. So other mandates in the case of COVID comes down the road. It makes it either with respect to pandemic or it could be a global, not global warming, climate change or. Um, whatever it might be social justice things like that okay we need we have just as we did for covid in covid i think i said somewhere covid is this generation's great depression it's just it's setting a precedent that's uh, that i'm afraid that could resonate for for many many years to come hopefully not so that's the that's kind of the downside from a classical liberal perspective the other side is the other thing you mentioned that um, uh, people and people in lo- especially local government uh, are, have shown flexibility in removing regulations. I mean, not just in uh, extending 
uh, into uh, restaurants, into into parking lots and such, but also uh, enabling uh, quick uh, uh, passage uh, approval, I should say, of, of pharmaceuticals in the case of right, these, and easing supply chains, allowing what was the case of brewer, breweries or whiskey brewers, if that's the right term, to to uh, uh, sell hand alcohol, uh, hand lotion with alcohol in it, um, and which you know the regulations that you can't do that. You're going to poison everybody, right? It, it, no, it, it it helps. So there's that kind of um, maybe mentality on the point on the point on the part of public authorities, but also the people who are supporting those public authorities realize, okay, we need to be. We have to allow this flexibility, hopefully. So that's kind of that's the other side of this. You know, I think both things are happening, and I'm not sure. I'm hoping the flexibility part is going to dominate going forward, but I think we'll get a little bit of both going forward. I'm not sure which one is going to win out. If that's the right term. Right. Yeah. For sure. Open question. We'll have to see. And and that's actually a great point in time for us to head to our, our formal wrap up, if you will. So let me say, we, we've talked about a lot. And as, as you know, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word in, in, in the episode here. So let, let's bring the conversation full circle and see if we can put a finer point on our exploration of, of many of the topics today. So let me ask you officially, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on, you know, your thoughts and some of Jane Jacobs thought on, on today's reality and, and the reality moving forward, the pandemic and, and so on and, and onward. Where, where, where can we go from here in terms of how, how, how we apply all the great things we've talked about today to the situation we face now and in the future? That's really hard to say, given what I said at the beginning of this segment. of uh, not, I'm not really speaking for Jane Jacobs, um, but I, I think you know she was a very independent person. Uh, she was an optimist. And I think uh, this this is reflected in her writings. I mean, on, on the good side, she she thought that people who lived in a neighborhood were the best ones to identify and to solve most of their problems. And sometimes they need help from you know higher up. Uh, on the downside, she tended to be a little bit naive on how government would operate, and she thought that um, uh, for the most part people would have good intentions. Now that may be not quite a correct uh, characterization, uh, but I think it is, I think it is. Uh, if you don't mind, let me just, uh, on that, read one passage. Of course. Very short. And this is this is from um, the last page of her book called Systems of Survival. And Systems of Survival uh, is uh, was written, I think in the year uh, two, 1990-something. Uh, sorry, I should know this off the top of my head. But anyway, it's about ethics. Uh, ethics that govern um, operation of the public sector and government and ethics that uh, govern the private sector and, and commerce. And toward the end of this, and it's written in the form of a dialogue. And the, the sort of the person who kind of stands in for Jacobs is a guy named Arm Brewster. And Arm Brewster says this at the end, as they've talked about the, um, you know, the ethics of commerce versus the ethics of government. And what Jacobs's point in this book is to show what's appropriate for one and what's appropriate for another. He says, "I used to think that I used to think of government, meaning good government, as the major force at work in the civilizing process. Now I'm inclined to think of government as being essentially barbaric." Barbaric in its origins, forever susceptible to barbaric actions and aims. But don't get me wrong, we need it. So I see government as being incapable on its own of civilizing even itself. And I think a lot of classical liberals would cheer when they hear this. But the next sentence comes from um, his uh, his partner. And she says, uh, some other, oh, excuse me, this is this is him continuing. He says, some other civilizing agent must therefore be necessary. This, I now think, is the guardian commercial symbiosis that combats force, fraud, and unconscionable greed in commercial life, and simultaneously impels guardians to respect private plans, private property, and personal rights. So in other words, it's these morals that will keep people in government and in commerce in check. Right. So if you're if you're afraid, for example, of government abuse, well, if they have the right, keep to the right morals, 
then they will, you know, will have good government. Uh, and so it's a kind of, you know, I think uh, somebody who studies public choice, for example, might think that's rather naive. But on the other hand, you know, she's an optimist and she believes that individuals will are resourceful and they'll, they'll tend, given the chance, to do the right thing. And I guess on that hopeful note, if what would Jay and Jacob say? Maybe that's something she would say. You know, going forward, we'll come out of this pandemic. And uh, we think, we hope that people in government and in the private sector will do the right thing, whatever that is. Whatever that is, exactly. I, I think we will we will leave it there. I think that's a great place to end it off. Sandy Iketa, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task again. My pleasure. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.